before and a couple few times and he was just mentally clearly out of it. He just, but now he's just like the old Ron. He's just perfectly back. So he's obviously he's healed from the stroke. He still has a problem with his right leg. Uh, you know, that's been incapacitated to some degree, but he's coming home on the schedule of the 17th now. So of March. So that's good. So it was just amazing to, to walk in and see him back to normal because when he went into the, he told me, he said when he went into the hospital originally, they told his wife that he'll never, he'll never make it. He'll never make it. <clears throat> and uh, he's made it amazingly. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together and uh, the opportunity we have to look at the word of God again. Uh, thank you for uh, Ron Biggs and, and Sue, and thank you for how you have uh, brought this healing to Ron. We're so thankful for this. Many, many people have prayed, and this is a great answer to prayer. Um, pray for Ken Rapp also with his struggle uh, with cancer, and we pray that you'll work in his life and bring healing to him. And bless our time together tonight as we uh, think and meditate and uh, seek to assimilate the truths of Scripture into our own lives and live them out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yes. Okay. You lost it? Okay. Let's see. Um, screen mirroring is on. I'll cut it off and I will cut it back on. It's still off, huh? Okay, let's see. What's that? No, I don't have any wires. <laughs> I don't have any wires. Uh, I was just going to try to uh, do it again here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Screen mirroring. Take it off and we will try it again. Let's see if it, uh, when it came right back on. Did that do anything? Is there, is there now? Okay. All right. Should be is that okay? All right. So we're looking at uh, the second part of chapter 11, and chapters 11 through 14, uh, I entitled, you know, Propriety in Public Worship or Proper Conduct in Public Worship. The first part of the chapter, chapters, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, was concerned with women's proper head covering and praying and prophesying in church. Uh, the second one we're going to look at tonight is the proper conduct at the Lord's Supper. Uh, the problem was the abuse of the poor at the Lord's Supper. I mean, when I was first saved, I think, I don't know, I don't know. A common interpretation was the problem was people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. That's not the problem uh, that Paul is discussing here. It's not that people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Uh, that that's 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 a problem, <laughs> but that's not why he's writing. He's not. That's not the major reason he's writing about. It's the abuse of the poor at the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about that. And then the third thing is twelve through fourteen, and that's the abuse of speaking in tongues in the church, which we'll get to hopefully a little while from now. So we're looking at uh, number two here: proper conduct for the Lord's Supper. What page is that? 51, okay. So I say here, uh, Paul now turns to take up a second abuse of Christian worship in the church at Corinth. Divisions associated with celebrating the Lord's Supper. Remember in verse 18, uh, there are divisions among you. And these divisions are based on socioeconomic class lines. Uh, humiliating those who have nothing, he says, verse 22 uh, I say, although Paul makes reference to some people getting drunk, that in itself is not the real problem, but one result of the primary abuse. In order to understand the abuse, we must be aware of the fact that in the early church, the Lord's Supper was most likely eaten as or in conjunction with a meal. 
The primary problem in the Corinthian church was an abuse of the church itself, specifically those members of lower socioeconomic status in connection with the meal. This is specifically stated in the rhetorical questions, don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. <clears throat> so Paul's complaint here is that some are despising the church by humiliating you know, people who have nothing. Now remember, in the in, in ancient world, and up, up, and up until modern times, and still in many countries in modern times, there's tremendous class distinctions, you know. Um, we, ha we have it in our country, too. Uh, it's mostly on economic grounds, you know, rather than a birth, aristocratic, you know, uh, uh, kind of grounds. But in the Roman world, there were certainly levels, uh, you know, of uh, socioeconomic uh, class. There were uh, people of the senatorial class, uh, you know, wealthy people like that. The equestrian class, very wealthy, kind of a merchant class. Uh, there were free people, freedmen, but there were slaves. And we know there were slaves in the church and so forth. So uh, that, that's gonna, that, that, those divisions are what we're talking about here. Those who are very well-to-do are abusing those who have nothing. And we'll see how that works out here. So I say here, but not only is there a conduct of the Lord's Supper an abuse of the church, the body of Christ, it's an abuse of Christ himself, Paul kind of will say here. The bread represents his crucified body, which along with his poured out blood affected the death that ratified the new covenant. By the Corinthians' abuse of one another, they were in a sense abusing Christ through whose death and resurrection they had been brought into the body, the church, into his body. So Paul, therefore, is going to take the Corinthians all the way back to the actual words of the institution back in the upper room, remember? Uh, before his death, Christ instituted this ordinance. And he's going to take, uh, take the Corinthians back so they can see the real meaning of the food, of its, what its rightful place is in the meal and so forth. I say here, most likely at Corinth, the church gathered for meeting in the homes of the rich. Probably the host was also the one who provided the meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Note Romans 16.23, which was written from Corinth a couple of years after 1 Corinthians. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. So obviously Paul was staying with Gaius. The whole church enjoys his hospitality because a rich person like that would have enough room maybe to accommodate people. Archaeology has shown rather conclusively that the dining room, or the, the triclinium, uh, in such homes would probably accommodate a maximum maybe of 12 guests, maybe more, but therefore the majority would eat in what's called the atrium, the somewhat larger entry courtyard, which would seat 30 to 50 guests. And the class conscience society such as Roman Corinth would have been, it would have been natural for the host to invite those of his own class to eat in the triclinium, while the others would eat the atrium. The language, your own private suppers, we'll see in verse 21, refers to the eating of meals, private meals by the wealthy, in which at the common meal of the Lord's Supper they ate, uh, ate either their own portions or perhaps privileged portions that were not made available to those in the church on a lower socioeconomic level. All right, let's look at that. Abuse of the Lord's Supper, 17 through 22. He says in verse 17, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That's quite a statement. Unlike Paul's previous discussion, where he offered you know, some words of praise, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions as I pass down on to you. When it comes to the issue of the Lord's Supper, Paul has no praise. Their meetings do more harm than good. That's an amazing thing. 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So Paul now explains how the Corinthian gatherings are unfortunately for the worse rather than for the better. When the Corinthians come together as a church, there are divisions among them. These divisions are directly related to their coming together as a church. 
So as the rest of this section will make plain, uh, there are only two groups that Paul has in mind. So we're talking about a division between two groups, what we might call the haves and the have-nots. Uh, the rich, you know, the aristocratics, the higher-ups, and those who were below them. Um, you know, Paul, we gather from what Paul says here, he, um, he, he hardly believes what, he, what he's heard about this, he, you know. Um, and to some extent, I believe it, you know. Um, he, I guess he expresses, he, you know, the way he may probably expresses this in order to shame the Corinthians. You know, uh, you don't want to, he doesn't want to believe this about the church. He doesn't want to believe this about the church, that they would act this way. So he probably phrases it in that way. I, there, I hear this, and to some extent I believe it. Uh, that, that is, this behavior is so inappropriate uh, it would make a normal person question the truthfulness of the report. You know, you know, when, if somebody said that, you, you know, a normal person would say, God, that can't really be true in the church. Well, it is, obviously, here. Verse 19, No doubt there had to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Seems like a strange verse, but the purpose of this verse is to explain the final clause of verse 18, and to some extent, I believe it. Apparently, Paul is now giving a theological reason as further justification for believing his informants. That reason is there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. This term differences is you know, synonymous with divisions here. There have to be divisions or differences. The problem with this verse is understanding how Paul, earlier in the letter, argues so strongly against divisions, remember? can now affirm a kind of divine necessity for divisions. Paul is apparently reflecting on the fact that there will always be true and false believers in the church. That is, though in general we do not want divisions in a church, we realize that in any church there may be members who are not truly saved, and their unregenerate state will probably reveal itself when they express their differences. The saved are the approved, while the unsaved or the disapproved are disqualified. So, you know, Paul is sort of giving kind of a theological reason here. You, I mean, it's, he, it shouldn't be in the church, but you're going to have this kind of thing. Don't be surprised if you have divisions or differences because, they're, you know, people are not necessarily all really regenerated. Um, um, I was thinking verses like, you know, First um, John 2, uh, it's the last hour, you've heard there are antichrists coming. There are now many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. So John is talking here about that there were people in the church who were not really true Christians, and they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. So he's explaining that there will be people who ultimately make a profession of faith and then ultimately leave uh, and, and, and reject the truth. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Uh, we're all professors of faith. We're all, when we accept somebody into this church, we accept them on their profession of faith. We don't have any way of examining true faith. Uh, we hope everybody has true faith, but you know I've been here long enough uh, to know that people who we thought were pretty genuine have left and and they departed from the faith. Unfortunately, so it does happen. First uh, John four, where he says this, you know, similar thing. Many false prophets have gone out and so forth in the world. So. He's, John is you know, saying the same thing here that we shouldn't be surprised that... I know it's, it's upsetting to Christians when they, when they see that thing, see that kind of thing in church. It's very upsetting, but don't be totally uh, shocked by it. Verse 20, So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. 
The word so then, Paul returns to his argument back in verse 18 concerning the divisions around the Lord's Supper. Although the Corinthians are coming together as a church and eating a meal, Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. It's not the Lord's Supper in that it's not a meal that honors the Lord. So Paul is drawing a contrast here between what should have been the Lord's Supper, one that's consecrated and honors the Lord, and what he'll say in verse 21, their own private suppers. Um, so even though it's intended to be the Lord's Supper that they're eating, it turns out, Paul says, it's not really the case because <clears throat> of these distinctions between the rich and the poor. You're abusing the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. In verse 21, Paul seeks to tie the ideas of verses 18 and 20 together. He does so by explaining the nature of the divisions and why their meal seeks to be the Lord's Supper. For when you're eating... Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, the other gets drunk. So it seems like that the rich, apparently, the well-to-do, the, the higher classes, were eating a kind of a private meal, a sumptuous meal, in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And these privileged portions were not available to everybody who was there. Um, I say here the precise nature of these private meals is not certain. Most likely they were more both quantitatively and qualitatively superior to those of the have-nots. So that's where we get the language, some are hungry. So that's the, the, the poor who are not getting much, apparently. They're not getting quantitatively as much food as the others. Some are hungry um, and have nothing, <laughs> Uh, that implies that the meal of these poor people is basically, you know, maybe just bread and wine uh, designated as belonging to the Lord. Maybe that's what they got, the elements, you know, that's, that's what they had. Whereas these uh, richer people, the, the, the upper class, were getting larger portions, other food, and so forth. I say, in the end, this means that one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Although drunkenness is certainly a problem, yeah. Paul is not simply concerned about drunkenness. What he's done here is to take words from both parts of the meals, eating and drinking, and express them in their extremes. You know, the extreme of, of not having enough is you go hungry. This, the extreme of drinking too much is you know, having much as you get drunk. Um, so some people are gorging on food and wine and they're getting drunk and so forth. Um, um, and, the, and the following verse will make clear here, as we'll see in verse 22 here, that Paul's concern is not simply with the drunkenness, that is a problem, uh, but with the hunger of the other, the fact that these people are being left out. Um, especially in a context where some believers have more than enough. Verse 22, but don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Are you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. It's clear from the tone of this verse that Paul is very upset with the Corinthians church and their abuse Abuses at the Lord's Supper. Paul is so filled with indignation that he puts forth a series of rhetorical questions intended to reduce the rich to shame. The first question responds directly to verse 21. is full of irony. For surely it cannot be, can it, that you don't have houses to eat and drink in. That is, if they really do not have houses in which to eat such private meals, then they are excused from doing so in the assembly of God's people. But obviously they do have houses. They could have their private meals at home, and that's fine. But the celebration of the Lord's Supper is not the place for that. Um, they're eating these meals sort of deliberately in the presence of these uh, people who don't have as much. And therefore, they're sort of despising the church, which is a 
body of equal believers together. Uh, remember, Paul says Galatians, there's neither male or female, rich, you know, slave or free. So there's an equality in the body of Christ, uh, spiritually speaking. And uh, that's a real problem here, Paul sees. They're, they're going totally against the idea of what the church is all about. And he's not going to praise them. So this is a very strong, harsh condemnation. I say here, the first two questions together indicate that Paul is addressing the wealthy. They have houses to eat and drink in. Stands in contrast to those who have nothing. And the next question, for those who have thought of themselves as keeping the traditions, the actions noted here probably did not register as a particular consequence. They had always acted like this. Um, and as I said, this, this distinction between the rich and the poor was just a normal part of their society. But these distinctions should not be maintained. I mean, Paul wasn't trying, he wasn't a socialist. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't a communist. He wasn't trying to just level the playing ground. And, uh, and, and he wasn't condemning the wealthy in, in the sense of, you know, he wasn't condemning them for their wealth necessarily, but their actions here in the Lord's Supper. They're, this is where these distinctions should not be uh, highlighted. Um, and, it, and, and, these, and these things mean a, really a destruction of the, of the Lord's Supper, which expresses unity. The meal proclaims that we are one body of Christ. Um, so they're despising, he says. You are despising the church of God. Uh, the, they're holding the church in contempt. It, it, you know, it's, this is very, very sad. Um, they're humiliating those who have nothing, degrading you know, the, the have-nots. Well, that brings Paul then, verse uh, 23, to the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. He's going to have to go back, as I said, and explain what the Lord's Supper is all about. Contrary to what Paul had said about the Corinthians in verse 2, they are now not keeping the tradition of the Lord's Supper. Since this is so, Paul feels compelled to remind them of his true significance for repeating the actual words of the institution. By their going ahead with their own private meals and thereby humiliating the have-nots, the wealthy have also apparently lost touch with the meaning of the supper itself. So he's going to repeat the words of the Lord's Supper that Jesus gave in the upper room. Um, uh, to remind them of why they celebrate the supper in the first place. We celebrate the supper in order to remember Christ in a special way. Um, and that special way, he says, is namely to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And their actions are not in accord with that proclamation. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In verse 22, Paul makes it clear that he had no praise for them in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is because they're failing to keep the tradition, traditional teaching of the Lord's Supper. To demonstrate this, Paul appeals to the tradition itself as he had received it from the Lord and had passed it on to them. So Paul wants to establish that tradition about the Lord's Supper that they had received from him and came ultimately from Jesus himself. He says, I received it from the Lord, he says. Um, so that, as we said, the, the Corinthian uh, celebration of the meal doesn't truly, um, is not truly the Lord's Supper in the sense it doesn't reflect or proclaim the meaning of the meal as it came from Jesus Himself, from the Lord Jesus Himself. Um, now it's difficult to know exactly what Paul means here when he says, For I received from the Lord what I have passed on to you. Um, Paul could mean here that he had direct revelation, that the Lord had directly communicated this to him. And that's possible. I don't, I don't know for sure. Certainly, we know Paul received direct revelation, so that's very possible. Uh, many scholars point to the fact here that 
we have the word received and passed. And these are common terms, sort of technical terms in Judaism for the transmission of religious instruction. The Jews, one generation received it and they passed it on. They received it and they passed it on and so forth. Um, so it may be that Paul is saying it was received and then it was passed on to me. It could be. It's, it's hard to know here how we are to take his exact words. But obviously, whatever it is, it's, it is the truth from the Lord. I say here, our present celebration of the Lord's Supper is a continuation of the last, that last supper that Jesus ate with his own disciples. This was probably a Passover meal at which he reinterpreted the bread and the wine in terms of the body and blood, soon to be given over in death on the cross. The term body refers to his actual body, which was about to be given over in death. The verb is simply means signifies, stands for, or represents. So when he says, this is my body, he doesn't actually mean this is actually my body. Now, this is where the Roman Catholics are wrong, you know, on this kind of thing. Sometimes is just means represents. In John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the bread of life, the verb to be, same verb. I am the light of the world. Now, he didn't mean that he's actually, you know, I mean, he, you know, he's, he's not physical light. He's not, John 10, 9, I am the gate. He didn't mean that I am a gate. I'm a physical gate, you know. So that's what we have here. Uh, no one setting, as I say here, no one setting with Christ around the table would have thought he was saying that the bread was somehow a literal extension of his flesh. They certainly wouldn't have thought that. Uh, but the truth is, he's saying that this represents, symbolizes his coming death, his atoning death for the sake of all who would accept the forgiveness of sins it made available. So the point is, each time the Corinthians and each time we eat the bread of the Lord's Supper, we should recall, and we try to recall, his death, and, and therefore we should act in a way, that's what they should have done, they should have acted in ways consistent with Christ's you know, giving of himself, his self-giving, uh, that kind of thing. And, and what they were, they were acting was totally contrary to that. Um, they were to do this, Paul says, in remembrance, that is, as a memorial. So, you know, in our church we hold the mem memorial view, that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. We're, re we're remembering. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't save us. It doesn't provide saving grace like it does in the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church is a sacrament that, that helps you get to heaven. You know, you need, you need that sacrament. So it's, it's not that. It's, it's a symbolic memorial of what Christ did. Um, verse 25, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ identifies the cup with his blood in terms of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31. Some of the Corinthians were abusing what was supposed to be the Lord's Supper by going ahead, remember, with their own private meals in such a way as to humiliate the others in the congregation. Paul recalls the words of the institution precisely to emphasize that whenever they eat this meal, it is to be the Lord's remembrance. In the next verse, he will go on and explain what that means for him. Verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul now concludes with a verse that really explains what Paul has been getting at all along. The word for indicates that he is now giving his reason for repeating the tradition at this point in the argument. It's not because the Corinthians have forgotten the words, nor because they have abandoned the supper. Rather, it's because their version of the supper gives a false view of its original intent. 
So remember, Paul had asked, how, sh you know, shall I praise you? Remember, he says, shall I praise you uh, for how you're carrying on? He says, no, I'm not going to praise you. Um, for the tradition is this. And I'm not going to praise you for here is the tradition. 4, verse 26. Here's the tradition. Um, at which points he repeats, you know, the, the words of Jesus and so forth. So the bread and the cup together signify the death of the Lord. For he now explains, whenever you do this, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, in his remembrance, we are to be reminded through proclamation of the salvation that was accomplished you know, by his death, the death of our Savior. Now, this is uh, maybe a point we don't sometimes stress, but the verb proclaim in this verse, notice he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It always means to preach the gospel of Christ in the New Testament. It does not mean that the meal in itself is technically the proclamation, but during the meal there's a verbal proclamation of Christ's death. In his death, Jesus gave himself freely for the sake of others with his body and his blood presented by the bread and the cup. He ratified the new covenant between God and his people. So the point he's making here with this verb proclaim is probably that uh, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they are talking and explaining what this is about, you know. Um, it's not just we're just taking these in some uh, sacramental way that, as the Roman Catholics do, that just by taking them, they're going to give us grace and they're going to keep us saved and all that. We're, they're a memorial, and so when we take it, we are at the same time explaining to people Here's what these elements mean. We're talking about the bread. We're talking about the, the proclamation. We're talking about the gospel. Remember, these people didn't have any New Testament. These early Christians didn't have any New Testament. So uh, this was really very important for them, you know, especially that during the Lord's Supper, they would talk, they would, it would be explained about the gospel. The gospel would be explained and so forth. You know, which we do in our larger, you know, I think it's good, uh, this church does, um, when we have, when we do uh, our larger celebration of the Lord's Supper for a whole day, you know, we do the, the ordinance Sunday. You know, we have, we take the Lord's Supper in conjunction with the kind of the Sunday morning message, you know, and we kind of emphasize and explain, you know, Pastor Ken explains the, well, what, what's this all about? What is this, what is this, what are these, what do these elements represent and so forth? And I think that's what Paul is suggesting here, that when they, when they did this in the early church, they proclaimed and talked about the Lord's death, that these elements represented His, his death until He comes. Um, and this is where the Corinthian version is, very, is not satisfactory at this point. But the fact that they were abusing one another they were negating the very point of his death. The point of his death was to create a new people, Jew and Gentile in one body, you know, a rich and poor, you know, male and female, slave and free, you know. Um, so the church is a new people in his name in which these old distinctions based on human depravity are no longer in effect. Um, so the slave free is not in effect in the church. That's a distinction based on depravity, something that happened after the fall. So uh, by, by keeping those going, by what they were doing, they were abusing the very uh, emphasis of the Lord's Supper, what, the, what, what Christ did in his death when he created this new people, one new people. Well, now he goes and says, uh, verses 27 through 34, the manner in which the Lord's Supper should be taken. In this section, uh, Paul now applies the point of verses 23 through 26 to the Corinthians' version of the celebration. Their supper in the Lord's honor is in fact dishonoring to him in two ways. First, the haves have been abusing the have-nots by going ahead with their own private meals. 
there is that going ahead there. It's hard to know how much we make of that. It's very possible that the reason they were going ahead is because they were arriving early. Uh, it's it's very prob one 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 possibility is that um, that people who were poor would be working all day, and this was probably a celebration at night, mostly us. Um, so I've heard of the agape feast from other pastors. Yeah. So that is not what he's talking about here with these private meals. That's unrelated. To no. The, the, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 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 related in the sense that there was a meal, you know, a probably uh, they probably celebrated a meal, a, you know, had a, they had a meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper, okay. uh, in that sense. But uh, I'm not sure what you're particularly referring well, there to. Are, I think it's in Jude and Second Peter. Yeah. About their, your feasts of charity, like, and the agape. I've heard. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's. I've yeah. heard some people talk like they did a meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Yeah, I think they did. I think. It was yeah, it was. Some, okay. some people, so that is, that is probably, okay. probably. Okay. I mean, that's what we generally think, that most people think that there was a meal. We see it here. There seems to be a meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't think it's required that you have a meal, but probably they met together in the house. When the Passover, the, the, when Jesus instituted, that was a meal. They were celebrating, a, they had a Passover meal. Um trying to think. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to think of any denominations that actually have a meal. Uh, maybe there, there are some. I can't. I'm trying to think about the brethren here. I can't remember if they have a meal in conjunction with it or not, but um, I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember now. But uh, it's, I don't think it's essential to have a meal or anything, but I think they did, apparently. For, it's, at least from this passage, it looks like they did. And it's sometimes called a love feast or love it's, it's true, it's true. Um, so um, here's the manner in which it should be taken, Paul explains. He applies the point to the Corinthian version. The, their Lord's suppers, their supper in the Lord's honor is in fact dishonoring to him in two ways. We said the haves or have-nots are going ahead. And second, They've been abusing the Lord Himself by not properly remembering Him, especially in terms of the salvation He has accomplished through His death, which was intended to make them one, not divided at their supper as their supper goes. Uh, and we, you know, I mean, that, that must have been a, I was just going to say, that must have been a, a continuing problem in the early church. Remember, I mean, James talks about the rich and giving them the seeds and, you know. So, you know, those class distinctions... Uh, would uh, would be hard to overcome. The purpose of the you know this present section is to correct this first abuse, this abuse about um, this behavior of of uh, going ahead with their own private meals and leaving out these people abusing the poor. Um, verse twenty seven, he says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The word so then indicates that Paul's now applying what he has just said about the meaning of the words of the institution in verse 26 to their abuse of the table. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, which is what they were doing, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Partaking of this meal in an unworthy manner is what the entire section is about. Unfortunately, the phrase in an unworthy manner was translated with the adverb unworthily in the King James. Therefore, whoever shall eat this bread or drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord tends to give the impression that the problem is with the character of the person doing the eating rather than the manner in which it's being done. That's the real problem here is that their abuse of the poor. Paul's real concern is related directly to verses 20 through 22 where some are abusing others at the Lord's table about going ahead with their own private meals. Such conduct is unworthy of the Lord's Supper where Jesus' death is being proclaimed until He comes. So much so, Paul goes on to say, that such a person will be guilty of sinning against the body 
and blood of the Lord. So in that sense, the sinful character of the person eating is important because they are disregarding the true significance of the Lord's Supper. So the character does come in, but it's character because of how they are disregarding the true significance of the Lord's Supper. I say Paul's point is that those who carry on at the Lord's table, as the Corinthians are doing, have missed the point of the meal, which is to proclaim the salvation through Christ's death, signified in the bread and the cup, and proclaimed in the bread saying, and the cup saying, to eat the Lord's Supper in a manner that violates its purpose is to proclaim the Lord's death. To proclaim the Lord's death makes one guilty for the death of the Lord. Guilty is a judicial term which means the Corinthians are answerable to God, the final judge for this abuse. So the Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death and those whose behavior at the Lord's Supper does not conform to what that death means, uh, you know, effectively are, are, uh, are on the wrong side of things, I guess I could say. Um, they're not on the Lord's side anymore. Uh, um, they're sinning against the Lord. They're supposed to be there to celebrate what the Lord has done. They're aligning themselves with, uh, you know, they're aligning themselves with people who don't understand what the death of the Lord is about. Um, Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians, remember, in chapter 2, he talks, he says, none of the rulers of this age understood the cross. They didn't understand what was going on. Um, and so they're vulnerable to God's judgment, he says. They're going to be judged by God. They didn't understand what they were doing, what was going on, the significance of it. And so, so these people are sinning because they're, 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 um, they're, not, uh, they're not celebrating it understanding the real significance. To them, it's just a meal, apparently. They're having a great feast, a big time, and that's a problem. Uh, verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. The Corinthians' behavior has misrepresented the gospel they claim to embrace. Before they participate in the meal, they should examine themselves in terms of their attitudes toward the body of believers, how they are treating others, and their understanding of what the elements represents, since the meal itself is a place of proclaiming the gospel. So this, along with verse 29, as we'll see, you know, raise cautions about sort of casual participation in the Lord's Supper by those who are not obedient Christians. Um, it, it's, it is a serious matter. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. The word for indicates that Paul now gives the reason why we should examine ourselves before taking part in the Lord's Supper. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Drink means they pass sentence on themselves if they fail to recognize the significance of the Lord's Supper. The term body refers to the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal, but the meal in which the Corinthians proclaimed that through the death of Christ they were one body, the body of Christ. And therefore... They are not just any group of diverse people who should keep their socioeconomic differences intact at the Lord's Supper. So they have to discern, Paul says, they have to recognize we're, we're celebrating this as the body of Christ. And they have failed to do that by the way they treat these have-nots. They treat them as, you know, lesser beings, <laughs> And they're discri you know, discriminating against them. They're just, oh, they're not important. So that means they're failing to discern the body of Christ and what it means to be a Christian and part of the body, uh, one body. Um, they're not these differences. There shouldn't be these differences. And they're not spiritually, but they shouldn't be manifested in life. Um, 
Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. This judgment that Paul announced in verse 29, you drink judgment on themselves, has already begun in the Corinthian church among those who have abused the Lord's Supper. That is why many among them you know, are weak and sick, and a number of them have fallen asleep. God has brought illness and even death, fallen asleep there, to chasten the disobedience of some of the Corinthian believers. Verse 31, But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in, the way, in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So picking up the theme of self-examination for verse 28, Paul says that if the Corinthians had been examining themselves, they would, have been, they would not have been experiencing the judgments of verse 30. Their examination of themselves is to take the form of discerning the body. If they had been doing that, they would have not been coming under judgment. However, they are not in fact presently, they are, they are in fact being presently judged by the Lord in the way mentioned in verse 30. So this judgment is to be understood as you know, divine discipline. God is, is disciplining them as a loving God correcting his children. He's chastening them. And the purpose of this chastening, he says in verse 32, is so they will not be finally condemned with the world. So God chastens us to bring about our perseverance. Um, so when we wander off into sin, uh, God brings whatever he is necessary to bring us back to him, to remind us. Uh, if we're truly Christians, he's going to remind us. He's going to bring things into our lives. Circumstances could be health or physical things or whatever it might be to get our attention. Uh, so God keeps us through these means. He keeps us to himself. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. The word so then introduces a final conclusion in verses 33 through 34 from Paul's previous discussion. First, he says that when the Corinthians come together to eat the Lord's Supper, they should all eat together. So I think Paul is urging the wealthy to demonstrate normal Christian hospitality. He'll say in Romans 12, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. The second piece of practical advice is addressed primarily to the well-to-do in whose homes the church is meeting. To them, not to the have-nots who are left hungry at the private suppers of the rich. Paul says, anyone who's hungry should eat something at home. Probably in this context, it means anyone who wants to gorge themselves, you know, anyone who wants to have this great feast should, you know, eat something at home and not, not prepare these elaborate feasts and meals that you're not they're, not, they're not going to be available to these poor people, these have-nots. They don't have anything. Um, so if you're going to have these meals, Paul's not saying you can't have these feasts and all that, but do it at home. That is, your own home is not at the church gathering. Don't, don't do it there. Um, but not in the context of the gathered assembly where some have nothing and others are humiliated. Now, fortunately, you know, this doesn't, doesn't seem to apply to us that much because we celebrate the Lord's Supper rather simply and we don't have a meal with it. And so it's not a, a, a great problem that, uh, that they were having, you know. But it's still possible to, you know, not discern what's going on with the Lord's Supper to be flippant and, I suppose, you know, 
uh, rather casual about it. And you know, yes. Um, I found it interesting when you explained because it, it's funny that I grew up on the King James and hearing on War of the Lake, and you kind of explained it was more the manner in which they were partaking rather than necessarily their character. Although there is yeah, there is uh, there is element of that. Yeah. So Paul does talk about that need for self-examination, but I, I find that for me personally, it ended up being more a remembrance of sin than a remembrance of Christ. Yeah. And like the whole point of it is the remembrance of what Christ did. Yeah. And so what, based on what Paul is saying here, what do you think a proper self-examination at the Lord's Supper would look like? Like what, what questions should we ask for? <clears throat> How should we approach that? I know you mentioned the being serious. Not yeah. What would be some other things? Well, I think it, it suggests, and I, I, I said it earlier here, that it suggests that we should examine our, probably our relationship with other people, with other Christians in the body and so forth. That, um, you know, maybe we don't make distinctions in the church based prominently upon wealth or something like that, but you can still have cliques and things like that and people who who have their little private groups and don't associate with other people. So you can get that kind of thing, you know, and that's bad, that's wrong. I think that, that would come in here. And, and of course, you know, just uh, uh, problems between Christians, you know, uh, unresolved conflicts, I think, comes in here. You know, you have, you, have, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've actually been in churches where some people sit on this side and some people sit on this side and never the twain shall meet, you know. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, I'm not leaving and they're not leaving. They're going to stay to the end, you know, and, but they don't associate with each other, you know. It's just, no, no, it's not that, but, you know, that's, that, those things can, so I think all those things, you know, come in. We should, we should be in good, in good relation with other people in the church. We shouldn't have any unresolved conflicts and that, and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't look down on people and we should be able to associate with others and have fellowship. It's not as, I don't think that's as great a problem in America probably. You know, it probably is a more problem in class-oriented societies, maybe in other countries, you know. I, I can see where that could be, you know. Um, I mean, think about, you know, you think about history and think about England, I think about, you know, Church pews. Well, it's been in America too. Church pews. People bought pews, and they had their pew at the front, and you didn't, nobody sat in their pew. You know, so they were. Those were just those kind of. They, they were. Those were problematic divisions that were. And when you talked about it too, I thought of like I think India, the, the caste. Yes. Yes. The, the, there was no interaction. That's the one that that troubles me. That's the one that really is troubling. That. And it's still like that today. It's still like that today. And, uh, you know, we've had, in the seminary, we had, we had students from India, and, uh, and it's still like that. I mean, it's, they still, uh, even the Christians have not completely given, they don't give that up. They don't, that's what I, I've seen. It's troubling, it's troubling to me that it's very strong there. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, well, we, I don't think, I'm not associating with that particularly. It's just that this was just uh, the normal um, class, class divisions of a society uh, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, that are naturally going to come into the church or, you know, are going to follow themselves in. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure it was, has, we would say with the temple, but yeah, this is, yeah, that, this is a problem. Um, so in America, you know, I, I guess in America, we just haven't had as much problem with it, at least in current times, you know. Um, I mean, it's still true that we have an elite class, rich class. Uh, most of our divisions now are based upon wealth, I would say, don't you think? They're, 
I mean, it's still families. Uh, I mean, they're still aristocratic families in the sense of, you know, Harvard and Yale in recent years have gotten into real trouble because, um, I mean, one way you could get into Harvard or Yale was if your father went to Harvard or Yale or, you know, or something like that, or you were wealthy. You know, they had, they had so many admissions for, for people, you know, who were Harvard grad, their parents were Harvard or Yale or things like that. There certainly is that, there's still class distinctions in America, but not, not as much like you say India. That's really a, I've always been troubled by that when I hear those Indian Christians talk. Uh, I can remember a guy saying, well, I'm of the Brahmins, you know, and, and he would say, you know, he would tell me that when he walks into the bank, <clears throat> he just walks to the head of the line. You know, this is a Christian guy. Yeah, but not there. And I, and I always say, well, how do you know what a Brahmin is? You know, how do you know this upper class? And they would just say, well, we know, we know. And I, I, I don't get it myself. You know, I don't, I don't see how they know, but he said, yeah, I don't know whether you just assume you're, <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, the, the Brahmins, the, the upper classes just kind of, and it's still there. And it, it hasn't gone out of the Christian world at all, unfortunately. It's, it's too bad. Well, let's uh, uh, just take a few minutes and we'll maybe introduce the spiritual gifts here. Um, the last section here, the last major section before the resurrection, 12 through 14. Uh, I say here from chapters 8 through 11, Paul has been dealing with problems in the Corinthian church related to worship. 8.1 through 10.22, he absolutely forbids the Corinthians to participate in temple meals. Chapter 11, begins. Paul begins to take up three problems involving their own congregational meetings. First was the head coverings, you remember, when praying and prophesying. Second was the abuse of the poor of the Lord's Supper. And third is the abuse of speaking in tongues in the assembly. I say here, Paul's arguments in chapters 12 and 13 sets the stage for the specific corrections in chapter 14. The argument in chapter 14 is in two parts. First, in 1 through 25, using a running contrast between tongues and prophecy, Paul argues for the absolute need for intelligibility in the assembly. Second, in verses 26 through 40, offering some specific guidelines beginning with tongue, Paul argues for the absolute need for order in the assembly. Since correcting the abuse of tongues is unquestionably the focus of chapter 14, it is reasonable to assume that the argument in 12 and 13 leads to these correctives. In chapter 12, Paul emphasized the need for the diversity of gifts and manifestations in the unity of the one spirit. Paul's emphasis is thus designed to counteract their singular enthusiasm for tongues. Tongues is included, as we'll see, in each of the each gift list in chapter 12, uh, where he lists the gifts, but it's always at the end. I, you know, I think that's on purpose. He's trying to put less emphasis on the gift of tongues. Um, he does that after the his greater concern is for diversity of the gifts. Um, so this view of the problem that tongues is the problem, the abuse of tongues, explains what chapter 13 is doing here. Uh, their passion for tongues in the assembly was another indication of their failure to love one another. That was certainly true in the last chapter. <laughs> and Paul will set forth in chapter 13, as you know, love as the essential ingredient, the necessary ingredient, for the expression of all spiritual gifts. Um, the reason for these gifts, he'll say, is the edification of the church, which is precisely what you know, love aims at. If we love a person, we're concerned about their, their welfare, their, their, their spiritual well-being. And so um, the gifts are there for the edification of the church, 
But uninterpreted tongues, he'll say, don't do anything. They don't help anybody. And so he's going to be very negative on that. So, okay, uh, no speaking in tongues tonight. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll do that next week. <laughs> so come back and I'll explain how we speak in tongues here at CBC.